It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tibet, the 1920s. This story doesn't have any one particular protagonist because it's at this time that a host of people are seeking something for which they've traveled the world over. For now, though, we're going to look at the first character. He's a man with a mission. Gleb Boki is a member of the Soviet Union's secret police, the NKVD. These are the early days of the nascent communist country, and all sorts of strange ideas are floating around. Boki himself has, for the longest time, been influenced by Eastern spiritual ideas. He's Ukrainian himself, and at this time a proud Soviet, but his spiritual leanings are something of an anomaly within the Communist Party. To this end, Boki has a plan. He's heard tell of a strange, wondrous place far beyond the Ural Mountains, far beyond the strange Orient, hidden deep in the valleys of Tibet. In the western end of the Kunlun mountain range in the Himalayas is a secret, forbidden place. After talking with several Buddhist lamas from Mongolia, he's certain. Shambhala is real, and he's going to find it. He's even got his own laboratory in his department of the NKVD, where he experiments with combining Buddhist practices and rituals and Soviet citizens. If only he could find the real place, he believes he can engineer the perfect communists by combining Russian spirit and Buddhist spirituality. But Boki's plan falls through. There's too much going on at home that requires his attention, and he's already playing a dangerous game politicking within the NKVD. In 1924, the Soviet Foreign Commissariat sends its own mission to Tibet, but not nearly with the scope that Boki wanted. The man himself dies in 1937, executed on charges of treason when he rolls the dice and loses in the game of Soviet party politics. But as strange and fantastical as Boki's idea were, he wasn't the only one. Another Russian, Nicholas Rurek, was also obsessed with Shambhala. He didn't care too much for politics, he was an artist, a seminal one at that. He immigrated to the United States after the revolution and became embroiled with our old friend, Theosophy. Inspired by its teachings and Eastern mysticism, he became convinced that he was chosen to unite the people of Asia with a new, Buddhist-inspired religious movement, 
and bring about the so-called Age of Shambhala with the revealing of the Hidden Kingdom. He organized a massive expedition in 1925 to look for it, taking his family and an entourage from Kashmir to Mongolia, visiting a large number of holy sites along the way. Rurik cut a strange and somewhat enigmatic figure. On the one hand, he was shortlisted several times for the Nobel Peace Prize, and even influenced US Vice President Henry A. Wallace. On the other hand, H.P. Lovecraft, all-time horror writer and infamous racist wackadoo, was inspired by him when writing At the Mountains of Madness. But the biggest impact for this story was felt with the writing of Lost Horizon in 1933 by British author James Hilton. Hilton was inspired by the travels of Joseph Rock, an Austrian-American explorer, and his travels in Tibet, as well as the general further at the time, around Eastern mysticism. So he invented the concept of Shangri-La. Now, that might sound more familiar to Western ears. An idyllic monastic valley hidden deep in the Himalayan mountains, a place of eternal earthly paradise full of immortal spiritual beings. The debate is ongoing as to whether Hilton was inspired by the ancient stories of Shambhala, or whether it's a pure coincidence that he invented a concept that's so strikingly similar to one found in Buddhism. But what are we to make of this? Is there really a hidden valley kingdom deep in the Himalayas? Is it a Western invention? A product of theosophy, that most strange and esoteric of philosophies, or an adoption by them? What's the truth behind the story of the Shangri-La and Shambhala? Welcome to Demystified with Ashley Styles. Now, I'd like to have a small discussion before we get into the meat of the episode on something that's going to permeate later discussion. Edward Said, in his titular 1978 book, talked about something called Orientalism. Now, if you've done A-level politics, then you'll know this from studying multiculturalism or post-colonial discourse. If you don't know, basically, it's the habit of the West to categorize all things Eastern under one big stereotyped umbrella. Take, for instance, the idea that Asians are somehow uniquely spiritual, disciplined, traditional, hierarchical, academically skilled, and all possessing an intimate knowledge of mystical, ancient arts. It's basically an Asian version of the noble savage trope, and it's important to this discussion. When I myself was writing that intro that I just read, I did stop to consider, am I perpetuating the stereotype of Asian cultures and their adaptions as inherently mystical and mysterious one might even say inscrutable. Now, I'm not too worried for my own part. I make all my topics sound esoteric and mysterious. That's kind of the point of the show and kind of why I find it interesting. But it is something worth putting on our proverbial painting palette before diving into this story. Now, without much further ado, let's crack it open. You'll have noticed in my introduction that I talk of Shambhala and Shangri-La, and there's a reason for that. They're two separate entities, but they're also kind of the same thing. I'll elaborate more starting with Shambhala. Shambhala is an ancient Buddhist concept that first appears in Tibetan Buddhism roughly in the 11th century. Mentioned in the Kalachakra Tantras, translated as the Wheel of Time Tantras, the mythical kingdom is featured in a narrative that goes roughly like this. King Manju Sirikit is said to have been born in 159 BC and ruled over a kingdom of about 300,000 people in the Himalayas, some of whom worshipped the sun. 
He is said to have expelled 20,000 people from his domain who clung to sun worship rather than convert to Kalachakra Buddhism. After realizing, however, that these were the wisest of his people, he asked them to return, and some did, but those who didn't set up the kingdom of Shambhala, a city-state. The king initiated the preaching of Kalachakra teachings in order to try and convert those who had returned and were still under his rule. The Kalachakra Tantra prophesies that when the world declines into war and greed and all is lost, the 25th king of Kalki will emerge from Shambhala with a big army to vanquish the evil and usher in a worldwide golden age. This final battle is prophesied for the year 2425, the 5104th year after the death of the Buddha. So you'll notice right off the bat that we see Kalachakra Buddhism as a subset of Tibetan Buddhism, which is itself a subset of Vajrayana Buddhism, one of the three most prominent schools of Buddhism, along with Theravada and Mahayana. Vajrayana is also called Esoteric Buddhism, or Tantric Buddhism, and is most commonly found in Tibet and the Indian subcontinent. For another religious equivalent, think Protestant, then Anglican, then Church of England Anglican. It's not an exact translation, but I'm trying to get across that it's sets within sets within sets. And since this story is so heavily reliant on the Himalayas as a locale and Tibetan Buddhism as its vehicle, it's easy to see why it's quite localised in terms of spread and content. Also worth noting, I have seen some sources say that this story actually comes out of India in the 900s AD, which wouldn't surprise me given that a lot of Buddhism comes historically from India. Now that's Shambhala. Shangri-La, on the other hand, is the fictitious country located in the Himalayas, populated by a people pure of heart and spirit, who as a result live supernaturally long lives. It was, quote, invented by James Hilton in 1933 in his book Lost Horizon. Now, I've done a lot of looking into this, and I cannot find any concrete evidence one way or the other to either support or refute the idea that Hilton knew about the story of Shambhala. He personally cited Joseph Rock's adventures, published in National Geographic, about his time in Tibet, so whether he came across the story doing his own research, I really can't say. There were other tales of lost civilizations there. Apparently a Jesuit priest went looking in the Himalayas for a lost tribe of Christians after mistranslating correspondence from the Mughal ruler Akbar. There are, of course, a wealth of lost city and kingdom stories that exist outside of the Shangri-La. Take Troy, for instance, or Angkor Wat. It's just that Shangri-La and Shambhala have so much in common, and the era of peak interest in that mythology was roughly between 1920 and 1940, and a lot of big players got involved. So it's so strange to see how close they are, but possibly being completely separate. Back to Shambhala. It's supposedly meant nowadays to be a spiritual place rather than a physical one. That by following the teachings of Kalachakra Buddhism, you can attain a state which is like being in a mythical land where you don't age and are spiritually pure. But boy howdy, that didn't stop people from thinking it was genuine and a geographical location. Another aside, it also appears in the form of Bern teachings. Bern is an interesting shamanistic religion unique to Tibet and is similar but distinct from Buddhism. Also as another aside note, and this is an important one, when I say Tibet, I don't exactly mean the modern day province of Tibet within China, annexed by the People's Republic. What's referred to as ethnic Tibet is a massive region because it was at one time part of the Tibetan Empire. Yeah, that's right, Tibet had an empire. Google a map of them at their height. It was genuinely enormous. As such, ethnic Tibet is not confined culturally to China's Tibet Autonomous Region. The broader area of ethnic Tibet also includes to the east and north parts of the Chinese provinces of Sichuan, Qinghai, Gansu, Yunnan, and Xinjiang, 
the Indian territories of Ladakh, Lahaul, Spiti, and the Balistan region of Pakistan, the extreme northeasternly Indian states of Assam, Arunachal Pradesh, and to the south, Bhutan, Sikkim, and northern Nepal, as well as the areas of Mustang and Dolpo, the regions inhabited by the Sherpa and Tamang peoples, and even the extreme north of Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Even parts of modern-day Bangladesh were once part of this Greater Tibet, also called the Tibetan Empire, so Tibet is a weird term because historically it can mean any or all of those places I just mentioned, whilst its cultural epicentre is definitely what nowadays we would call Tibet and the broader Himalayan plateau area. Uh, for this story, consider all of those places I've mentioned as being relevant. It's a big area. Now, Buddhism in general, and Tibetan Buddhism in particular, didn't come to Europe for a long time. Some missionaries assumed the term that Shambhala, misspelt as Jembala with an X, was supposed to be another name for China, or Cathay as it was known then. But wouldn't you know it, in the 19th century we get another roll around and our old pals Theosophy come to town. Now, we can actually talk a little bit more about Theosophy since it's relevant to this story. Helena Blavatsky, one of the core founders of Theosophy, mentions it in her texts, Shambhala, that is. She was born in 1831 to aristocracy in the Russian Empire and, as a youth, became fascinated with the occult, as was often the fashion at the time. She spent a while travelling the world and became convinced that she was in contact with a group she called the Masters of the Ancient Wisdom. She claimed to have met these men whilst travelling in Tibet, surprise, surprise, where they taught her how to blend religion, spirituality, mysticism and science to find a higher plane of understanding. She got involved in the spiritualist circuit of psychics and mediums, but controversially argued that it wasn't the spirits of the dead these people were contacting, but in fact the masters. She relocated to the US in 1873, befriended Henry Steele Olcott, and rose to public attention as a spiritualist medium, attention that included public accusations of fraudulence, as was common for psychics at the time. Two years later, they founded Theosophy. She went to India along with Olcott and became one of the first people from the United States to formally convert to Buddhism and spread her Theosophy until they got in trouble for allegedly being frauds. Surprise, surprise again. She went to London, where she lived the rest of her life, dying age 59 in 1891. So a colourful and productive life, if nothing else. She published a decent number of texts and books on her theosophical thinking, and the main reason that we're talking about her is because she mentioned Shambhala. She claimed to have met the masters in Shiagatse in Tibet, which is a city, which is also not Shambhala, but does mention it as a location of some relevance to the masters. But she introduced the concept to the pot, and it would be later theosophists that would give greater importance to Shambhala. Alice Bailey, who wrote over 20 books on theosophy, stated that it was, in fact, another dimension, an ascended plane of existence where only the truly enlightened could go. But why bother taking a detour to talk about theosophy? Because that's what brings Eastern mysticism into the European mainstream. Now, I could dedicate whole episodes to the spiritualist movement, but to cut an extremely long story short, in the 1800s in America and Europe, the upper classes in particular, and everyone in general, became obsessed with the afterlife, a sort of chthonic revival. And all of a sudden, mediums, spiritualists, fortune tellers, and psychics, anyone who could see beyond the veil, as it were, became all the rage in the salons and parlours of anyone's who was anyone. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle became obsessed with it, which ruined his friendship with famed sceptic and magician Harry Houdini. The story goes that Houdini showed him a magic trick and Conan Doyle refused to believe it wasn't genuine magic, whereupon an incredulous Houdini got into an argument with him that never really ended. 
Theosophy was the vessel by which some of these more esoteric ideas travelled to Europe, where they were absorbed into the popular consciousness during a time when a lot of social change was occurring and new ideas were going every which way. This all reaches a fever pitch in the 1920s with the expeditions I mentioned earlier. Suffice to say, they didn't turn up anything, but what's really interesting is the way that it intersected with what one might call the rise of ideology at the time, such as Bokisuch. Now, one candidate for this isn't the Nazis. Their 1938 expedition to Tibet, which was very famous, was actually to establish a completely separate crazy ridiculous proposition. My googling on that one was weird to say the least, and don't get me wrong, Nazi occultism was a real thing, and it's exactly as weird as it sounds, but it wasn't the basis of their expedition to Tibet. Also, I can't for the life of me find why the 1920s was when this whole thing hits its apex. I think it will probably be a combination of travel infrastructure, such as new aeroplanes, railroads, and ships getting steadily better, the joie de vivre of the Roaring Twenties, leading a lot of Westerners to aim to explore the mysterious East. After the Second World War, though, the whole thing starts to die down. Tibet's annexation in 1950 by the newly formed People's Republic of China and the subsequent crackdown on foreign entry to the region and serious persecution of the region's Buddhist monastic orders saw to that in part. But it was also the decline of spiritualism that helped. It hadn't been really big since the mid to late 1800s and we had that big burst in the 1920s. Everyone was looking for answers in the wake of the First World War and now had money to pay for mediums and psychics, so it did get revived a little. But by the end of World War II, everyone was far too disillusioned for that. Think about it. The horrors of the war, the myriad crimes against humanity, the Cold War looming overhead, and modern technology replacing ancient superstition in a way that it never did or could before. Nobody wanted to hear about Himalayan kingdoms when the bombs could be falling at any moment. So it disappears. Whilst Lost Horizon was well received at the time and immensely popular, today it is disastrously orientalist the kind of thing that would make Edward Said jump out of his clothes. It's basically entirely reliant on the trope of the East is a culturally vague, mysterious land that we can paint anything we like on it and call it lost or hidden. And with many forms of direct or indirect racism, it doesn't matter whether the depiction is good or bad. Take, for example, the trope, and I'm going to use the name here, of the magical Negro, popular in revisionist folklore like Disney's unfortunate Song of the South, the idea that the folksy ways of black people make them inherently spiritual and magical in a way that white people aren't. But it's bad apologia. Just because you make your black character have magic powers doesn't excuse phonetic accents or the fact that the magic is due to them being more connected with the earth, i.e. less advanced technologically. All of it's really a subset of the idea of the noble savage, that these people are less civilized, and that's a good thing. We, the white man, are so burdened by our technology and wealth and society and civilization, oh, to be so childlike again. It's exactly the kind of thing that Rudyard Kipling absolutely loved and was the basis for his The Man Who Would Be King, also about a hidden kingdom in the Himalayas where white men go, except in that story, because they're so advanced, they become gods to those people. I know, right? But it's the basis of the whole Shangri-La concept. And you might be saying, oh, so you can only base a mythical kingdom in your own country? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need a certain amount of understanding of another culture when you're setting a story there. For instance, I could write a story about a fictitious place called Congolia, a hidden kingdom in the heart of the Congo. If I'm going to do that as someone who's not from there, and I go and make all of the Congolians stereotypes, grass skirt wearing, devil worshipping savages, doesn't that reflect a deep-seated bias? 
And that doesn't mean I have to make them all-powerful and all-knowing, either. Just like the Shangri-La myth, it doesn't erase the fact that I haven't bothered to make believable characters by making them all perfect. What stories need are believable characters, believable civilizations, and not being based off of half-baked ideas that you found in the back of a magazine. So, does Shangri-La exist? No. Does Shambhala exist? Probably not. Are they one and the same? I'd say debatably, from the perspective of Shangri-La being an adaptation, but otherwise they could do with being kept distinct. I think the bottom line is that Shambhala is still a used concept in Tibetan Buddhism with a cultural value of its own, whilst Shangri-La is now the name of a chain of high-end hotels. To be fair to Hilton, though, I doubt he ever intended to make the two one of the same. He wrote about a whole bunch of other stuff that wasn't Shangri-La, it's just that this was one of his two most famous books ever, and this one entered the public lexicon as a result of selling like gangbusters. As for Shambhala, I don't think there's very many Buddhists these days who would tell you it was ever meant to be real. It's a metaphor. As many things in Buddhism and other religions are, an idealized state that isn't necessarily real. Unlike Plato's World of the Forms, however, I think it is genuinely supposed to be exclusively metaphorical. The story itself was probably believed to be genuine at the time it was written. I couldn't tell you at what point the switch happened from being believed to being accepted as a story, but nothing more. As much as I'd like to discuss the lurid ideas of Nazi occultism, it just wasn't as much a thing as the fine programming on the History Channel would have you believe. Sure, it was real. Himmler was way into it, but it's got nothing to do with Shangri-La, and that surprised me, because I thought that I'd heard somewhere that it did, which is why I looked it up and why I found out that it didn't. Just goes to show you how far a myth can travel beyond its original source. Uh, but I will say, the stuff about Gleb Borki's idea of a perfect Buddhist communist was very much real, so you can take that home if you wanted to share things you didn't know were a thing. But that's going to be the lesson for today, studying these strange games of Chinese whispers that stories go through, if you'll pardon the sort of pun, as well as our timeline. We start with the ancient tale of Shambhala that comes out of India in the 900s AD. It goes up to Tibet, taken by Buddhist monks, where it's absorbed into the broader Tibetan cultural sphere, including Burn practitioners. It's then, through some strange osmosis, sucked via theosophy into the whirlwind of spiritualism and into the popular consciousness of Europe and America in the 1800s, and a particular hold on Russia. In the 1920s, due to various reasons, possibly travel infrastructure, uh, renewed exploration, uh, mysticism, some spurious political motivations, explorers from all over the world travel to the Himalayas in search of Shambhala, or what they believe to be Shambhala in their interpretations of literature that's been chopped and changed and passed around and mistranslated and retranslated. For instance, Gleb Bokhi wasn't looking for the Buddhist Himalayan kingdom, he was looking for something that would help him perfect the idea of communism. Nicholas Rurik wasn't looking for the specifically Buddhist mystical kingdom of Shambhala, founded by that king millennia ago, he was looking for the place which would help him create a new religion based on Buddhism that was supposed to unite all of Asia into its own brand new country and resist Western political influence. That all sounds very high-minded and broad for both of them, but they were using the stories to their own ends, or versions of the stories that were passed to them by someone else who got them from someone else, you see the way that it goes. 
And then in 1933, James Hilton thinks that he's got a brilliant idea for a novel after reading a National Geographic article on Joseph Rock's Tibetan expeditions, and he writes Lost Horizon. Only it's about Shangri-La, not Shambhala. Again, I couldn't for the life of me confirm a link between the two. But however he comes upon it, it's a bestseller, and Shangri-La becomes a household phrase. And after that, well, you tell me. Have you heard of Shangri-La, the mythical land of plenty and earthly paradise? I'll bet far more of you have heard of that than Shambhala. But of course, depending on your own background, hell, I was super into Buddhism in high school and I never heard of Shambhala until I decided to do an episode of this podcast on Shangri-La. And that's the Chinese whisper, or Tibetan whisper, perhaps you should say. With every translation and adaptation and change along the way, the story becomes more and more different until we barely recognize it. Where is Shangri-La? Who knows? It could be anywhere, from southern Mongolia to northern Myanmar to western India to the middle of China. But that's kind of the point. It was always meant to be this nebulous idea because it was built on Orientalism, which is built on the idea that the East is mysterious and inscrutable and ultimately difficult for Westerners to understand because it's so exotic and hidden and strange, so it doesn't matter where it is. Sure, it's based on Tibet in the 1920s because that's what Hilton had read about, and to that end, he strongly hints it's in the western end of the Kundalan Mountains. But he also kept it mysterious because who doesn't like a good mystery? And here I am, talking about the mystery, so congratulations, James Hilton. You get the last laugh on this one. You've been listening to Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.